Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. Um, this is this is a very important episode. Yeah, this was a very gripping and intense episode to record. And we think that this is so important, um, especially Jamie Reed's story that we talk about today comes on the heels of last week's episode where we critiqued the gender affirmation model of care. And, you know, you and I, through our podcast, have kind of critiqued it theoretically, philosophically. We've talked about anecdotal stories of what could go wrong. But Jamie's entire experience at Washington University Transgender Health Center is a perfect example of what happens when you take this theoretical framework on the ground and it ends up being basically almost every single patient that walked in the door became a good candidate for these treatments. And as Jamie describes, the consequences of that are profoundly damaging to kids and families. Yeah. And, you know, Jamie is a whistleblower. And when you're a whistleblower, there there is a policy. She has, her, you know, Bernadette Royals, her, her lawyer with her in, in the episode. And rightly so, because not only do you have protection as a whistleblower, but there's a protocol to follow. And yeah. we do hope that like people who are listening to this, because we have no doubt that people who are listening to this will be like Jamie once was listening to us thinking, what am I what am I working in? Is this good? What 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 should I do? And when you hear how it's been for Jamie and, and you know, the, the extraordinary arc from going, she couldn't be more pro affirmative to begin with, to becoming somebody who really lost faith in the entire system as she watched a broken system unfold in real life with real people. It's very moving and she she herself has moved in the in the middle of it. And I can see why. What an extraordinary experience she found herself in. Through no fault of her own, she found herself in that. Yeah. And I do think uh, I have a special concern and we all have special concern for the parents who rightfully and justifiably go to the doctors seeking the best of care because they're worried about their child. And they get lost in an ideological care system that doesn't doesn't help their children. Yeah, we we want to jump into the episode, but before we'll just kind of share a little bit about Jamie and Bernadette, who you'll meet in a moment. So Jamie Reed, as we said, is a whistleblower. She was a case manager at the Washington University School of Medicine Pediatric Transgender Care Center at the St. Louis Children's Hospital. She's a bachelor's degree, she talked about it a bit, in cultural anthropology and also a master's in science and clinical research management, which, as Jamie explains, really oriented her towards looking at data and wanting to to kind of take stock of the data, which was an important part of her story. She identifies in the LGBTQ community, and she's the proud parent of five children. Bernadette Broyles is the president and general counsel of Child Parental Rights Campaign. It's a not-for-profit public interest law firm that engages in litigation and advocacy across the U.S. to protect children's health and defend parental rights from the impact of gender identity ideology. Ms. Broyles received her law degree from Harvard Law School and received her undergraduate degree in biology from Yale University. Yeah. So we hope that you enjoy this conversation with Jamie Reed and Bernadette Broyles. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. 
and we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. We're pleased to have you, Bernadette and Jamie. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for letting us be with you today. Stella, where should we start? Um, I'm I'm honored really to have you both here. And I kind of I'd love our listeners to hear a little bit about Jamie, where you were to, to how you came to be a whistleblower, because as I, I was just saying just before we started, to be a whistleblower takes an awful lot of courage and it takes an awful lot of gumption. And it would be lovely if you could tell us where where you were maybe a few years ago and what you were working at. And I know you started, I think in, in 2018, you started working kind of intensely around the gender. Just how you how you came to be sitting in front of us here today. <laughs> Thank you for that question. I think it's a good place to start. So I was someone who wholeheartedly believed in gender transition for young people. I was coming out of an understanding of the WPATH SOC 7 and really kind of understood, felt like I understood that document and came from working with young people who are HIV positive and many of them who were identifying as trans or gender diverse before I started directly at the gender center. I came into that center thinking that this was well-established science, that it was considered the gold standard of care and that many of the questions and concerns had been worked out well before centers like this were rolling out with their doors wide open to hundreds of young people. Mm. Clearly I was wrong in that assumption and figured that out slowly over a few years. But I thought I was joining a team where there would be a multidisciplinary team response and a multidisciplinary team view that was following guidelines. And I assumed also that by following guidelines, you would have some patients that did not meet criteria for medical transition, because that's how all guidelines in medicine are supposed to work. Some people don't meet the guidelines and some people would not be moving forward with medical transition. And what I just started seeing with patient after patient was magically in this kind of care, everybody somehow was okay to move forward and, and start these medical interventions. And um, you said you came from WPATH SOC 7, so you were kind of aware of gender identity. If I had asked you, do, do you believe in gender identity theory? This is 2018, I'm gathering in and around then. Would you have said I do? Or would you have said, what's this theory? What are you talking about? It's pretty much the same as being trans or as being gay and we have to help children medically transition. How would you have answered? I would have answered affirmatively, yes, that I believe that. And Stella, a quick segue. I think that one thing that you and I might share is 
that I also experienced a lot of gender dysphoria and gender confusion, confusion as a young person and had often said to the team that I was on that if this clinic would have been opened in 1993, 1992, I would have probably been a patient. Um, so I, I come from the queer community. I have identified within the queer community since I was uh, in high school. I attended an all-girls Catholic high school and was an out lesbian in, in high school. Um, so yes, I, I thought that the, the concepts around gender identity would have fallen at that time. I would, I would have agreed that they fell within that, that theory. Um, but I think as we've seen, sometimes when theories get unleashed on the public, yeah, things sometimes can go really wrong. How did you square you kids like us would have been in the clinic? Oh, it, it, it was a challenge because I, I distinctly remember some team meetings where I was pushing back because the thing that I felt like kids like us needed was true, real therapy and mental health supports and oh. a mental health therapeutic framework. And that's honestly what I always thought was supposed to be offered at the beginning, that that was supposed to be, you know, that long-term therapeutic exploration I thought was going to be part of that initial stage. Um, it, it still is challenging though, because part of what I feel like as kids like us know is that there are a lot of kids who go on to accept or begin to have different feelings about their gender identity. And then there's also experiences in my life that if I would have been a kid at that clinic would have been radically different. I have mm -hmm. two biological kids, five kids total, you know, my experience as a parent, as a mother, all of those things would have been radically different. So you start to see that when this theory is put into practice, it kind of, like you said, magically, every single candidate who shows up at this clinic is a perfect candidate for this treatment. And, and, and to me, that, I mean, that almost sounds like a scam, you know, like, come see if this treatment is right for you. And like, everyone gets rubber stamped. And I'm reminded, I think, of, of a detransitioner who talked about this because she had therapy at a gender clinic and she said something like, you know, I, I felt like my therapist was really listening to me and taking me seriously. And I thought, wow, this this determination that I am the right fit is something particular for me and my story. And then she found out later after like contacting other people from that clinic or something, the doctor yeah. like was on YouTube saying, I affirm every single person. Yeah. So you're, you're seeing how this affirmation, this theory that affirmation is the best option, how that plays out in practice can you provide a couple of particular examples of like what what does go wrong on the ground but so I think it's not just the kids though I think the parents really do believe that they are bringing their children to a medical yeah. center where a team of medical professionals are going to do a assessment mm -hmm. and then make this determination 
I think it's challenging for parents who have been through that to recognize that the assessment for everyone is essentially always, well, if you want the medicine, we'll give you the medicine. That is not how a true scientific assessment is supposed to work. That's not how even I think some of the practitioners in WPATH think that it's supposed to work. I think mm-hmm. that they believe they're really assessment is supposed to be on its face value means that everyone can't assess and get a yes. There has mm-hmm. to be some no's. There has to be some maybes. There has to be some slowdowns. And and no, the model is set up that everyone is affirmed. Um, I'm not sure I understand. Oh, my watch is talking to me. <laughs> my apologies. Um, she doesn't believe in the affirmative approach. No. <laughs> I'm not sure I understand. (laughs) (laughs) But so there would be patients who, even if you just looked through their medical history or their intake notes and things like this, just at face value, they should not have met criteria. Um, Things that we know would never have gone through the Dutch like the Dutch protocol, they would have never passed muster in the Dutch protocol. How somebody could be diagnosed as having borderline personality disorder, potential schizophrenia, um, autism disorder, ADHD, have all of these concurrent medical conditions that are not resolved, that are still in chaos, and somehow that meets criteria, I I could not understand. And so when we would have these team meetings, it it almost became like myself and one other staff member, I was beginning to feel like a broken record where it was like, how is this meeting criteria? How is What is the criteria that you're even using? And then there was a, a few really, really concerning cases that were clearly directly in the face of criteria. So even the Endocrine Society criteria says that we should not be using these medications for someone that can't even, that has no gender indication, and yet there were patients we were using this for as, in in no other way could I figure it out beyond chemical castration. There was a case actually where you described a young person who requested puberty blockers and it turns out that that she was requesting them because she didn't want to get pregnant. And in fact, it wasn't even related to a gender identity. So like from that perspective, I mean, that's maybe not an example exactly of chemical castration, but it's certainly like an indication that's not even remotely related to gender transition. And that seemed to be the case in several instances that you described in the affidavit, which was pretty shocking. That case is so sad, though, because that should have been figured out if you actually did any sort of therapeutic work Yeah. to actually figure out what is this young person's understanding of their own reproductive organs what is their understanding of their body and what what could happen with puberty i mean they weren't even making sure that they had those core understandings of the self and if if the young person cannot even identify those things then how is it that we are then trusting their self-identification 
with their gender identity and the indication for these these drugs. And how could they call this informed consent when it couldn't be more misinformed? I remember another case I, I heard you speak about was, um, you know, a big misconception among many girls. They'd been through puberty. They were menstruating. They were way beyond any sort of realm of needing their puberty blocked for any practical reasons, but were coming in for puberty blockers, which suggested they didn't understand what puberty blockers were on many levels. And it kind of, it made a mockery of, 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 of the whole system if they were going to be given puberty blockers. These children who are 16 and went through puberty at 11. But also from my clinical assessment viewpoint, that is an indication that what they are saying is not coming from themselves. Oh, yeah. That is an indication that they saw X number of TikTok, YouTube videos. They heard this mantra and what they were taking in was that the first thing I'm supposed to ask for is X. Mm -hmm. Even if, Mm -hmm. like, to me, that's just that they're parroting what they're getting from social media. Totally. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, Can you also talk about what happened with parental concerns or questions there because this was really unbelievable there were cases you describe where a parent says something like like you talked about how clinicians would really push the parents to consent to these treatments sometimes they were provided without consent but we'll talk about that later but you said one parent said something like well i'll give my consent but you guys are gonna do it anyway Yeah, they would. It was more than one case where the parents would verbally be telling. So let me take a step back here, though. One thing that I found really disconcerting about the center that I worked at is that we were not actually requiring or requesting any written consent from any adults, Um, which I don't think that is the case universally, but I do know that there was multiple occasions where myself and another staff member would just ask over and over again, we need a written consent because a written consent would make sure it's universal, that all of the information is being presented to all of the parents, that it is consistent, and that the consent itself, the document itself is keeping up with current practice. The way that they were collecting consent was just in a verbal one-off in a in a one hour appointment that was then dependent on what the clinician who there are different clinicians, what the clinician verbally said at the time. So even that process, I, to this day cannot understand why that was the process. And then why parents, I really feel for parents here to me as a parent, I cannot take my child to go get their tonsils removed without signing a four-page legal document. How I am verbally consenting in an office for a an intervention that has the known potential for lifetime infertility without having it given to me in a written format that I have to then sign and have a document to bring home with me signed a copy. Oh, that... That's a real 
red flag for me. But the consents of the parents, they would say and tell the nurse, I felt bullied. I felt like I had no choice. I know that you're going to do this anyway. And any time a parent would say that, the nurse would then go back and ask the doctors and say, well, this parent said they feel like we're going to do this anyway. And then the doctors could hear that and not pause. Is These were the ethical huge problems. If you have a parent verbally telling your nurse, I feel bullied and powerless in an ethical medical situation, the doctor should immediately stop what is happening and go back and say, you know what, we should not have a parent feeling bullied. We need to have, we need to schedule a follow-up. We need to have another appointment in, in three months. We need to, we need to bring the therapist in to also have conversations. And that's just ethically not what was happening. And Jamie, just to be clear, you're not saying that that happened every time with every parent, right? Mm -hmm. You're saying it happened enough such that it was troubling. Is that, is that about right? Correct. It, it was not a one-off and it was happening enough and with regularity. And then what I thought was the troubling part too, is that the clinicians were never seeing, you would think if the first time and then they kind of, they're busy, they overlooked it. They thought, Oh, well, this parent is just complaining. But when it starts to become this pattern that they, doctors are supposed to see patterns too, right? Yeah. They should be seeing, uh uh-oh, we have a pattern here where parents are telling one of our clinical staff that they're feeling bullied. That that should be, uh uh-oh, we need to change something about our process. But it was because I saw what was happening on the back end on the team side that also made me realize this was never going to change, which was we would have these team meetings and the way that they would discuss the parent who was saying, you know what? I'm not ready to consent for the blocker. I think we need more therapeutic time. They would talk about, they would malign this parent. They would talk about this parent as if they were stupid, as if they read the wrong studies. Oh, this parent is so dumb. They think that, you know, I remember we were making fun of some parent because they they were thinking and hoping that if they could just let their child progress a little bit through their natal puberty, and the parent used a phrase, I would like to have their brain washed in their natal pubertal hormones mm-hmm. and see if some period of time in natal puberty might alleviate some of the distress. Um, in team meetings, they were making fun of this parent and, and talking about how, you know, oh, they're so dumb. They think that there's some hormone wash that occurs in the brain and like talking down about people. Mm. And that's not, that's not the right way to to talk about. Could I ask you, I, because I, it's very similar to really what Hannah Barnes was talking about in JIDS, you know, the numbers were ridiculous. They got too much. It turned into a kind of processing plant where it was go, go, go. There wasn't time to think there wasn't time to stop and, you know, huge kind of, flaws in the system were happening. But why do you think the the clinic were the clinicians, maybe the head people, why were they so into it? Was it because they truly believed in gender identity and these children needed, even in the face of, 
you know, they came in with tics and they came in with Tourette's and they came in with autism. They came in with all sorts of comorbidities. They were seeing what you were seeing. There's no doubt about it. Why were they just so into it? I just, I just don't know is what was going on there. It's my kind of last question to my dying day. What was going on in their head? I think when you're in an ideological framework and you see 10 cases in front of you yeah. and three are really poor outcomes and are doing really badly, but you have these two over here that they're like, wow, we helped this kid so much. Look there. And they look great. And, and, and sometimes the perspective of, I think endocrinologists who are all about the hormones is there is a little bit of a separateness about the mental health. And to them, they're like, look what I did with this body. Wow. I had these hormones and look at what I was able to accomplish and change in this Yikes. physical body in front of me. And there is some magical thinking and feeling as that endocrinologist. Look at what these hormones can do if you, you know, if we, if we block and then go right on to cross-sex hormones and then they were like tinkering with the, the hormones. If I add a little bit of this, what can I do to the breast growth with this? They viewed it from a different lens. It's sometimes I think about it in terms of childbirth. The, if you don't want to have a C-section, right? Maybe you shouldn't set foot in the hospital to begin with, but by the time you reach an OBGYN, they're the one, if they're trained to do surgery, yeah. right? They're, they're going to want to do a C-section. Yeah. So an endocrinologist is trained. Their whole way of thinking is look at what a hormone can do. If I give it to this human but standing in front of me, psychologists are not trained. The psychologists are trained to look for the brain. Oh. You're stumped, Jamie Reed. Ha No, I'm just kidding. Ah. <laughs> but but that's a good point because because I'm trying to get that sense too because it seems like in some ways the endocrinologists are really the ones pushing for the intervention. But Stella's got a point. What about all of the psychological intervention people? But but I think that's the framework that all of the mental health issues will be solved. Oh, yeah. I know. I think we talk about how young people have this belief that if they just get hormones that all of their mental health will Definitely. be resolved but the but the clinicians think that way too i do really believe that a lot of them felt like the anxiety the depression all of these things will just get better Ooh, if we can just mm -hmm, give them mm -hmm. these hormones and what the problem was in the actual clinical practice is that for the patients that was not what was happening on the back end yeah well and sasha also that's presuming that the psychologists were were acting and exerting completely independent professional mm -hmm. judgment. But mm -hmm. was that was that actually the case, Jamie? No. I mean, all of the psychologists who are supposed to be the ones doing that element of assessment were either directly tied in with the center as the direct in-house clinicians, or we were really only sending patients to those in the community who we knew had the same uh, ideological framework. Oh, you said that the, the psychologists, the in-house psychologists had a pre-written template for how to approve intervention that they 
they they sometimes just signed it. They didn't even do an independent kind of Well, they of filled in the blanks. Form. Mm. They filled in the blanks on the form. But we would, it was part of my job. If I had a patient who we needed the letter of support written by the psychologist or the therapist. So if we need the rubber stamp, the, the you know, the clearance by that letter, I would send them a blank template. Now, I have heard some of my critics say, what's wrong with that? You know, social work uses templates. The thing that was wrong with it is that if I was operating within the ethical bounds as a case manager should, then I should be sending three blank templates. I should be sending a blank template that says this person does not meet criteria and is not a candidate for this treatment. This person does meet criteria and is a candidate for this treatment, (laughs) or this patient needs more time and the assessment needs to be continued. That is the ethical way. Mm -hmm. If we are going to send out a template, it should have been managed. That was not what happened at all. I sent one template and that template said this person meets criteria and the assessment is ready for them. And I, I, I believe you said that, you know, that there was this cognitive dissonance where people would say, no, we're not giving cross or mastectomies to under 16 year olds, at, you know, having seen somebody's mastectomy scars an hour beforehand in, in, in clinic, that there was actual lies as far as I could gather. There were actual lies. Those lies were directly to our state legislature. And the thing that is so difficult for me about the actual lies is that if you truly believe in what you're doing and if you truly believe that it is the right thing to do, there should be no reason why you need to lie at all. And so they were directly saying to our state legislature, things like surgery is completely off the table. There is no surgical, there's no surgery happening for those under 18, um, that we don't refer anyone to surgery. And maybe on some level, they felt like they were telling the truth because they're not the surgeon who didn't do the surgery. But we surely were still referring patients to meet with the surgeon much younger than 18. I know that one surgery occurred within the hospital setting under the age of 18. And we also had a list that we gave to all age patients to surgeons across the state that were doing surgery. And we also know now from clearly from other detransitioners that they had surgery. Top surgery is not, this is not, this is a myth that needs to be dispelled in the United States. There are people under the age of 18 having top surgery. There's probably a child having top surgery today who's under the age of 18. What is top surgery, Jamie? Because these euphemisms kind of blanket over what these things actually do to the human body. What is top surgery? It's a radical bilateral mastectomy. It's the removal of all chest tissue. And it used to be the formation of a masculinized chest. If you look now, there are definitely patients who are not even asking for masculinized reconstructions. So there are patients who are asking for no nipples, who are asking for what ends up looking like this just uh, scar that's just straight across 
the torso that uh, they're not even asking for and getting. Yes, and getting. Mm -hmm. You you talked about one person who I believe was eighteen, if memory serves, who had a mastectomy in the children's wing of the hospital, and then called the surgeon and asked to put her breasts back on. Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah, they called back uh, within three months. And the thing that really hurt about that care was the first thing was that the surgeon didn't even bother to call the patient back themselves, that they punted it, that they asked myself and the nurse in our center to figure out. And then they didn't even have any sort of, they didn't even have like a, a, a guidepost to, to talk to this person. So immediately my response was, how would you treat any other, how would you treat a cancer patient who had a mastectomy and is, mm. is three months post-op? Do you have a, a bra shop that has prosthetics? Do you know, where do you refer that patient to? Who do you help that patient see? What is the process for the reconstruction if they're asking for that? And they didn't, they didn't want to touch that patient with a 10 foot pole. And then they wanted to set up the guidelines to get the top surgery was that they only needed to have was was six months and then they wanted to like say on testosterone sorry can you just clarify six not months even what? that they needed okay. to be on testosterone but that they were identifying that as they, trans okay oh my or, god that their identity was only six months that was the time frame they were trying to say that in order for them to do the reconstruction and to give this person back a chest to give them back breasts, they needed them to wait a full year and have another new psychological evaluation. Whoa. So it, it didn't add up at all. It didn't add up at all. I, I've known uh, of, of people who, who thought after their mastectomy that by taking estrogen, their breasts would grow back because they knew trans women who took it could grow tissue yeah. and grew breasts so they thought they would grow breasts when they would choose to take oestrogen again and that's not true if you follow me and the, it's just such a heart-rending lack of informed consent these are these there are is, little babies kind of in many ways but there's no there's no going back for some elements of I know. that person will never be able to breastfeed produce milk uh, have the sensations that no that it, could you tell me do you remember when the first detransitioner of the clinic that you were working in came across your your kind of table yes yes and I will I will say this though most of them never told us and our loss to follow up rate is in the thirty was in the thirty percent range. Is that and a fact? So, it's in the, is that a fact? It's in, the third in my data sets, we were losing about loss to follow-up. So uh, can, I, can I tell you with certainty that all of those that we lost to follow-up detransitioned? No. Mm -hmm. But 
people who say that detransition rates are 1%, I think is also incorrect. So mm-hmm. I think that I think the actual rate lies in the middle of that. And don't forget, Lisa Littman's study, 100 detransitioners, 25% of them, or 75% of them hadn't gone back to the clinic. Oh, no. Why yeah. would they yeah. come back to us? Scene of the crime. So the, Scene of the, the first... The first patient that I remember who who notified us that they were detransitioning, they actually notified us because they were wanting um, speech therapy. They were really upset by the masculine pitch of their voice, and they were wanting assistance. And they also... I think we're very brave. They were just they were just telling us and one of the things they were telling us is they they straight up said that they felt like they were given a letter of support because they looked the part. Yeah. That they were judged based on, well, you look you're dressed, your your hair's cut, you know, you look the part and they they really questioned their own assessment and why they got that letter. Hmm. And I thought that the whole team was going to care. I thought we were then going to review the chart. I thought we were then going to really reach out to the therapist that wrote that letter. And, and I thought we were going to make some assessments and changes based on that. And, and we never did. And then we just started finding out there are more and more of them. Can, can you just clarify without identifying anything, um, about the patient like this i would presume is a young woman who's quite masculine in appearance is that accurate to say they spent about they spent a few years on tea and in the pediatric settings we were starting we were starting tea at a a low dose and titrating it up some young people if you go to places in this country like planned parenthood or some other I think you're going to be started on a full, what's considered a full adult dose. But we were titrating up. And pretty rapidly, though, testosterone T is going to, is going to drop your voice pretty quick. Um, facial hair. Um, I think a lot of the, the changes are by two years out are pretty much, you're as masculinized as you're going to get. But for the patient, the former patient to say, you guys approved me because I fit the part, my guess is like even before she started any hormonal interventions, she probably was a masculine young woman. And I bring this up because I'm thinking about during Stella, during the Joan Speck D-Trans conference, there was a panel of young women who were lesbians who were talking about how being young women who already present in a masculine way can quickly quote, convince the doctors that they're the perfect fit for these interventions. I, I, I hate to stop you here, but we had patients coming in who did not look the part at all and could have cared less that they looked the part, who were coming in in full makeup, in shirts with their cleavage showing. Really? Who... Oh yeah, who were dressed head to toe in pink, um, in in platform boots, and um, but yet they were they were sitting in front of these clinicians saying, "I identify as a boy." And one of the clinicians actually said that before she goes into the room, she has to suspend all disbelief 
and just accept what they were verbally saying in front of her. And I would see those patients and now in retrospect, could you imagine a patient like that showing up at the original Dutch clinic and yeah and and being and being cleared at all and what did you think when you met them did did your brain explode or did you break out in a sweat or or did you think i'm thinking transphobic thoughts and i need to sort myself out ooh i don't know that i ever thought i'm thinking transphobic thoughts and i need to sort myself out i think um <laughs> sorry i think i thought i think i thought more that this presentation is indicative to me of concerns for mental health and for, um, again, part of that goes back to social contagion. And because if you, if you do look online, you will see more and more of these younger girls who are physically presenting to the world in all these ways that are read by the world as female. And then they're going online and sobbing in a corner why they got misgendered on a video online. And it's where this is going is like, is pushing further and further into these kind of like shock value, um, trend lines that are are very not clear and very so many patients started to have these non-binary identities or these gender you know they were identifying as not even you're not even identifying as male yet you want they were coming in with like four different pronouns over a period of a year and different gender identities over a period of a year yes We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organization dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. Can you talk about the, the red flag list that you independently decided to start kind of documenting for yourself? Yeah. Um, so I think in order to really understand that, I want people to understand my own, my own education. So I, um, um, my undergrad is in cultural anthropology and my master's degree is in clinical research management and clinical research management is a degree that is highly focused on data, um, collecting data, data sets. Um, obviously it's about, you know, research is supposed to be ethically based and consented into and all those things. But to me, data 
data is what science is supposed to be about. And so it was getting to the point where we were raising these concerning patients to the clinicians in team meetings. And it would be one patient here and one patient here and one patient here. And it reached the point where if we can't capture, if we can capture this as a data set and as a larger data understanding, then maybe, maybe the more science-minded people will, will start to see this for what it is. And it also became a place where where I felt like I knew I wasn't leaving those patients behind. So we would bring up the patient and we would express our concerns. And as a multidisciplinary team, we would say, we don't believe that this patient is a good candidate to move forward. And then we would be overridden in the, in the multidisciplinary team and then they would be given a prescription anyway. And then in essence, there were so many patients, we, we just had to move on to the next one and the next one. And I felt like I was I felt like I was leaving those kids behind and I was going to forget about them. And I just didn't, I didn't want to forget about them. And so there was this way to like, if, if the minimum, if the only thing I could do at that time was write their name down somewhere and acknowledge on, in some place that I saw you and I saw that we were probably going to hurt you and I don't, and I don't want to forget that we're going to hurt you. So we would write their name down and put a little blurb and just this little like thing about how to remember them. And, and then that list grew the list of detransitioners. And it also was this similar way where it was like, they were just going to get lost. There were just so many patients. They were just coming in waves and there were so many of them. I just didn't want those individual people to get lost forever in the shuffle. And I didn't know at the time that there was going to be anything I could do about it. But I just felt like if the least, the very least that we can do in that moment is just acknowledge them for the person that they are and try to remember that they exist, uh-huh. that we were going to do that. And do you, do you, want and I'm sorry, I know I, it's very moving and it's very, very genuine. I just think it must be an extraordinary thing to go through because effectively you moved from we're saving trans kids or something like that to biting your lip thinking this isn't a good system. It's not being well run to Oh my God, I think we're harming kids. That, that, yeah. that was your, uh, do you remember any moment that you, you kind of crossed the Rubicon into, I, I don't believe this is fundamentally right for these kids. There were many, it, it felt like I kept drawing a line in the sand that mm. like, okay, it can't get any worse. This is my line and we're not, and there's no way that it could cross over this. There's no way. There's no way we're going to like say, yeah, let's give hormones to this kid who believes they have multiple personalities and are, and are saying out loud that some of their personalities are not even trans. Like there's no way we're going to do this. Right. And then we would do this. And then there's no way we're going to start a young person in a locked down sex offender 
residency that we're not going to do this. We're not. And it just kept feeling like every ethical line I drew was just walked on and walked on and walked on. And there were conversations where I, I had conversations with these doctors and I said, I, we are hurting people. We are hurting people. And, and, and what's kind of sickening is, is it wasn't necessarily that the response was, oh, no, we're not hurting them. It was, well, what do you want me to do about it? How can we, we can't, it was almost like they were saying, like, this system is set up that's so broken anyway, that it was almost like they couldn't even see a way out. Like, well, what am I supposed to do? Just start saying no to all these kids who want these things? And, and can I ask a question, too, because... Some of Jamie's detractors have claimed, well, who are you? You're not a doctor. Isn't that just your opinion? But, but Jamie, I mean, objectively, were, these, were a large number of these kids actually being harmed in some way? And, and, and if so, in what ways? So it was very clear with a, with a good number of patients that we would start a blocker or we would start testosterone, or we would start bicalutamide. And they were supposed to have a three-month follow-up visit and then a six-month follow-up visit. And they were telling us in the follow-up visit, I am getting worse. Their mental health was getting worse. They went from maybe being on one antidepressant to now needing referral to psychiatry and now on two or three. Or they would go from having some vague suicidal ideations to now attempts. And that is, that's not what the model is supposed to say. The model is supposed to say, we do this intervention, you get better, right? So why are they getting worse? And then the other thing that was getting worse is that, these interventions, they kind of suck. They're pretty terrible. Uh, testosterone, these kids would come in and they would have not very good cholesterol to start with. They were already obese. They already had not very good labs. They were already not healthy. And I would just watch their BMI on the chart go from like here to just like this and their cholesterol get terrible and their hematocrit and their and their labs and it was just it was just kind of gut wrenching that we were like taking these kids who uh, most American kids aren't super super healthy from the get go in a lot of ways mm-hmm. but then we were just like doing these interventions were just making them physically worse too and then it was it was strange things like we would be like, uh Oh, we now need to screen every like 16 year old. We put on T for sleep apnea because we're causing, we are causing these medical problems that we now have to intervene on. And so that itself medicine should have a, a balance is the intervention so incredibly necessary and causing so much positive that it's worth the trade-off but is it really like was it worth the trade-off for these kids to go from like normal normative labs to pre-diabetic to have bad cholesterol to need to go to 
to interventions to fix that. And their mental health wasn't significantly better. So it's like the, the whole right. point so is that the dysphoria will improve and the mental health will improve. But actually, you're saying that things got worse in many cases on both accounts, the medical account and the, the mental health account. And I, absolutely. I just I find it remarkable. We just recorded an episode on affirmation, the affirmation model. And to prepare, I was reading through all of these documents about how necessary and life-saving affirmation therapy is and gender affirmative care. And I find the discrepancy between how it operates on the ground in gender clinics and what is reported in the media by the proponents. There's such a chasm between those two things that it's unbelievably shocking. And people who are following this story in different ways are getting completely different impressions about what's happening. Whereas I, I just find that to be so terrifying, how deeply misunderstood the actual practice on the ground is by a lot of people. Um, I, I wanted to come back to something that we had touched on earlier. I'd love to hear, Jamie, as, as you're experiencing this and you're starting to just kind of keep a, a keep track of the kids that you're concerned you might be harming. At what point did you consider formally becoming a whistleblower? And can you tell us, maybe Bernadette, you can interject as well. What is that process like? Because before we started recording, you guys were saying there's reason to believe that this is not an isolated incident at one particular clinic. And I imagine lots of other concerned clinicians, doctors, therapists are watching this and also wondering if they might speak up about what they're experiencing. So can you talk to us about the process? And like, how did you decide to take that leap? And also, uh, what would you say to anybody who's who's listening and knowing and recognizing what you're mm -hmm. saying and thinking, what should I do? How should I handle this? Mm -hmm. So it definitely started internally first. So it started with all of those team meetings and raising every patient up and, you know, trying to use them, make the multidisciplinary model work the way it's supposed to work. So I did not jump from, you know, all the way to let's go meet with the attorney general. I spent a number of years trying to work within the center and work within the structure. And then I would have conversations with administrators and I would say to those administrators, look, I'm really concerned. Look, this is what's happening in England. Look, this is what's happening. This is what this data, this research, this is what it's starting to tell us. Like we really need to be looking at this care. And something that I found so similar to what happened in the Tavistock was um, towards the end of the book, she writes about the whistleblowers there never were really told you're totally wrong. They were told your tone is incorrect. You're challenging the wrong so way. You're the way you're framing it is the problem. You're, you should not be challenging the doctors in a team meeting when there's other doctors around. Those were the things I started hearing, you know, tone, tone, tone. Um, then, then it reached a point where I felt like if I left, I knew I was just going to be replaced by a hardcore activist. And that if I leave, then oh my God. who? Then it's going to be worse. potentially even worse than it is now. 
And I didn't want to leave the institution. I, 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 I work at a kind of at a great place. Um, my master's degree is from Washington University. But it really reached a tipping point in August of 2020 when a, a team retreat was held and we'd never had one before. And the first half was kind of those fluffy team meeting, team building kind of, you know, I, I refer to it as fluff often, um, you know, the feel good marshmallowy stuff. And then it took a turn um, halfway through the day when I came to the realization that, uh, okay, this is, this is it, where the administrators in the room directly use the phrase, you're going to have to get fully on board and stop raising any concerns or you really need to get out. And another coworker was directly told that they were no longer allowed to use the phrase I have concerns about this patient. To work in medicine, to work in any kind of medicine and be told you are not allowed to say you have concerns about a patient is the exact opposite of what administrators should be telling medical professionals. And it was at that moment when I realized if I don't get out, I'm going to completely, I have to get out. And so I secured another patient, I secured another position within the university and I left and I tried to let it go and I ethically could not do that because I felt like I was leaving those kids and a lot of their parents to the, to the wolves. And that is when I slowly started to build some team around me to help and was put in contact with Uh, my amazing attorneys, um, Vernadette and Ernie. And it was from there that I started to have the legal support that I think any whistleblower needs. You need to, first of all, you need to put a team around you, but there are so many, I was, there are so many people out there ready to support you though, too. Yeah, how, because I often say to people, you know, it's better out than in, You're be- you, you know, it's warmer out here than people think it is. How, how, and I know it's very, very, very difficult as well, you know what I mean? But your integrity will keep you warm at night. And also uh, the feeling that you've done the right thing. There's something incredibly, I won't say life affirming, but important. Liberating. Yeah, liberating. liberating. About... Yeah coming out if if you're in such inner turmoil as that would you speak to that a little bit because i've no doubt people are listening as i think you were listening to us before you i was listening to you yeah would you speak one of the people yeah one of the first things that i it is kind of hard if you just go google like 
I, I don't think gender medicine is good for kids. Like, what are you, I mean, what are you going to get? Like, you're not, it takes a little bit of effort to, to find the, the very smart, rational people who are discussing this issue. Did did you kind of, did you go Google in that night kind of go help? So I'll admit to my own liberal bias here. So I, I've always been a liberal. I started seeing some of the more rational, critical articles in the New York Times. Mm. I started seeing those. I saw the 60 Minutes with the detransitioners. I started, and then what I did too, is I actually just went back and really, really dug into what is supposed to be the guidelines. So I read um, SOC 7, then I reread it again, and then I read SOC 8, and then I read most of the comments that were going up as they were considering SOC 8. And then I started... What is SOC 8? Not everybody... Oh, the standard of care. Well, the they, it's not really a standard of care, but um, the document that well, WPATH put out. But then I started... So right. But then I started ch- chasing down the the actual the data behind it. And then I read the endocrine guidelines. So first of all, like I had to make sure that I was grounding my thinking in actual science Mm -hmm. because I know what my gut's telling me and I know what my ethics are telling me and I know what I'm seeing with these patients on the ground. But then I had to ask myself, am I only seeing this in this clinic? Is this because there's like a couple bad apples or is this whole model the issue? So then it was the understanding of the science, the data, and then I started stumbling across podcasts like yours um, and really listening and, and, then, and then finding the good people on the other side. One of the things a lot of my critics have said about me is that I've been co-opted and I'm being puppeted by the right. So here in the United States that I'm being used by a bunch of Republicans and um what I've actually found is the people that I'm in contact now, a lot of them are adult trans people, and most of them are are other liberals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I also take umbrage at the the accusation that somehow I'm just sort of this mindless right person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, my undergraduate degree is from Yale University in biology. And and law school is Harvard Law School. This is hardly, you know, the right wing bastions of, of Neanderthalism. Um, so to to answer your question about the whole whistleblower thing, though, mm-hmm. um, I'm well. Even before that, going back just a quick second about who it is that's on one side or the other, I'm struck by the god complex of these doctors. Yeah, yeah I, the notion that they cannot be questioned. And they cannot be constrained even by the laws of physics or the laws of, of, of physiology or basic biology. It's there, there's a, there's a sense of medical lawlessness here yeah. that is really striking me. And I think it's, it's probably would help to push, push Jamie into a position that she never thought she'd be in. Um, but then in, in terms of then where she landed, where she felt that she could not make any changes from the inside and needed to whistleblow. So when Jamie was brought to our attention, we, we did our due diligence. We didn't just jump mm-hmm. on board. Mm-hmm. But what made her claim so credible to us is, of course, we work with parents all over the country. 
We have filed amicus briefs in federal courts of appeals on behalf of parents of over 10 parents, but also have interviewed parents from all over the country. And what was striking to us is how, how many times we have heard stories from parents when they, you know, had confused children, dysphoric children, went to one of these clinics and how similar what they described yeah. to us was consistent to what Jamie was describing to us. Mm-hmm. Thinking of particularly the mother in, in Maine, um, it was a carbon copy. And how, cons- I'm, I would say almost 100% of all the parents we talked to were told that their child will commit suicide. Not may, not there's a risk. They affirm, they absolutely will, without question, will commit suicide if you do not authorize these treatments. And they were told this in front of the adolescent. I'm as a guardian at Lighting for Children for 11 years, appointed by courts to represent the mm-hmm. best interest of the children in court. And anyone else who works seriously with children, that to, to make such a, a assertion in front of an adolescent against their parents is coercive, is unethical, should never be done. You plant, you're, you plant that thought yeah. in the mind yeah. of the child and, you, and you, you give them a loaded gun to point against to their own head in front of the parent to use it against their own parents. And almost, so the parent, almost a challenge, almost a challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the parent is coerced, the child is manipulated, the, the parent is coerced. And of course, we're taking a particularly vulnerable cohort of children mm-hmm. that we're talking mm-hmm. who come in already anxious, already depressed and having other things going on. It is just un- so unethical. So mm-hmm. every we found everything that she had to say to be credible to us based upon our own other uh, experiences with parents across the country. Um, and so when we did the research, um, we have a, we have a Missouri attorney who is, who is an education and employment expert. And so the right way to, to do this was that we, you needed to go to the governing authorities that had authority to take action to protect the children in this environment. And that is the attorney general. Mm-hmm. It had absolutely zero to do with politics, like none. It was what the law mandated mm-hmm, of us. Mm-hmm. In order to get her protections, to be able to keep her to her job at Washington University, and yet to be able to expose the harms that we were done being done here, we had to work with the Attorney General's office. We had to file a formal complaint with that office. And then once that was done, the office was able to ex- extend to her a whistleblower protection such that she could not be um, fired by the university in retaliation for her bringing to the governing authorities um, what was going on there. And then they then catalyzed an investigation, not just in their own office, they made the referrals to the other appropriate um, agencies, which was the the, um, professional licensing board over doctors, which is the um, healing arts board and the professional licensing board over social workers and mental health professionals as well as the Department of Social Services, which has authority over the use of Medicaid funds because some percentage mm-hmm, of, these, mm-hmm. of these patients were being paid by Medicaid. Um, so once we had these protections in place, then Jamie was able to speak you know, in some limited way uh, publicly. And I would just say to anyone that's looking at this, who's having similar you know, uh, misgivings about what's happening there, it almost certainly is very similar in your state. You know, the, gov- the attorney general or some other governing ent- entity almost certainly would be able to give you whistleblower protection. And, and that would be, that would, that's the right way to do it. 
And can I add beyond America, whistleblowing, you know, protection is in other countries and there's many clinics all around the world. People often have a misconception, I find Americans do, that it's saner elsewhere. And, you know, in, in lots of places, it's it's not like it's like people have collectively lost, you know, for lost the run of themselves. For example, there's huge striking similarities, Jamie, with what you're speaking about and Hannah's book about Jids yeah. and the Tavistock. It's incredible. One thing, though, because I know we're coming towards the end, there's a couple well, there's about a hundred things I want to think about. But, you know, you mentioned a few times the, the utter lack of of uh, engagement endocrinologists have. It's like, who who do I inject? Where? If you follow me, the, the, the endocrinologist, the complete and utter, when they are faced with a detransitioner, from what I could gather, they just go, well, I've nothing to say here, rather than thinking, Hang on a second. Your work, your creation has created problems. Your work has created problems. What are you going to do about that? Are you going to maybe relook at your work? The utter distance they have. And also there's a colleague you mentioned a couple of times. And I wonder, did the colleague jump ship as well? And is that too nosy? So... For the detransitioners with endocrinology, I do think at the end of the day, endocrinologists prescribe hormones. And if they're no longer going to be prescribing you hormones, in their mind, they don't need is, to see Is you. that good enough in the first do no harm idea of you, you have ethics when you, are, when you are a professional? Well, uh, honestly, I, I think they probably shouldn't have prescribed the hormones in the beginning. And so... Potentially, if we are looking at this ethically, we shouldn't be doing that from the start. So I'm hoping that long term we don't. I'm hoping that endocrinologists are listening. I, I doubt it, but I, I just think the lack of <laughs> I highly doubt it. <laughs> the lack of endocrinologists but, who've spoken up blows my head off. I'm like, where are they? Okay, but part of that is because I think that WPATH and the endocrinology guidelines set this up so a lot of the problem with this right now is everybody is saying it's not my fault. I know. So the endocrinologists who are the ones who at, at the end of the day prescribe the hormones and manage the hormones are saying, but I didn't do the assessment. That was from the mental health provider. Yeah. And then the mental health provider is saying, but I'm, you're the endocrinologist. You were the one who prescribed the hormones. And the, and then when it goes really wrong, what ends up happening is we're blaming the patient the and parents. their parents themselves. Blame the parents. Where and we're you? saying, well, the parents are the ones who gave consent. And sometimes we say about the kids, oh. we say, where were you? You were 13. You agreed to this. Mm. So nobody wants to take any responsibility. Mm. But at the end of the day, the endocrinologists, the medical professionals who prescribe the hormones are the ones who are ultimately responsible. And even if they claim that they didn't do the assessment, then they need to make sure the assessment was done correctly. And mm -hmm. if you're getting a letter of support that said this, that there was two sessions done, then you should know right from the beginning that that was an incorrectly done assessment. And if you're very well paid in a profession that purports to be helping people, you should take responsibility over your work. Like with, with privilege comes responsibility. If you're an architect and continuously there's an issue with something you designed. Just to and your you. building keeps falling yeah. down. Well, you'd think. And the, the builders get yeah. blamed. You know, it, it, somebody somewhere has to realize there's a pattern. And thankfully you did, Jamie. But when there's it a pattern. It goes beyond of, payment though. What? It goes beyond mere payment. We as a society have granted a 
authority, a monopoly on doctors, a, a monopoly of power on doctors to be able to prescribe treatments that radically alter the body and the development of the body. They have a monopoly on it. You, these, these kids cannot go prescribe these for themselves. And so when you, with come power comes responsibility, there is an abdication yeah. of professional responsibility yeah. Yeah. On, on the part of these professionals who have seven, eight, nine years of training mm -hmm. that these kids do not have. Mm -hmm. And that they need to do, there's a, there's a fiduciary duty mm -hmm. that a professional has to the client or to their patient to use, to, to exercise their professional judgment in a way that serves their best interest, not just what they, they want at the moment, but serves their ultimate best interest and to do no harm. That's true for lawyers as well mm -hmm. as doctors. I know. Mm -hmm. Well, this, this conversation was really enlightening. And, and Jamie, I have to say, you have such a, a genuine, caring, thoughtful, and um, clear way that you communicate this experience and it's really powerful and, and it's been an honor to speak with you and i also am aware Bernadette, you've been working with families from the legal side all over the country and we'd love to have you back on to talk about some of those aspects of this gender identity thing happening in our country and our culture so um I think Happy. this is a, a good place to wrap it but we'd love to see you again Bernadette and Jamie thank you so much Thanks. Jamie. Thank you. Thanks. I'm happy to be on. Thank you all for what you do. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.